Hey, Jeff. For the first time in like almost 190 episodes, uh, welcome to Podcast Versus Everyone. I am your host this week, Jeff Newser, uh, and I am here with a special guest because Craig is still in Costa Rica. In fact, Craig, Craig, can I tell you a secret? Craig does not know that I'm recording this with Bryce. <laughs> I'm stepping out on Craig. I told him I was going to get him back for having Emma on. So, uh, so now Bryce is on. So what's up, Bryce? Uh, I'm just, I'm honored to be, uh, backstabbing Craig. I'm not excited to see how this goes in the slack for me, but other than that, this is, uh, <laughs> this, this has been a dream since I joined Kook Center. Emma and I talked a lot this last yeah. weekend about how I, she was like a Kook Center fan her whole life. I really wasn't until I joined Kook Center. Like I, I kind of got exposed to Kook Center very briefly before I started writing for the site. But I immediately fell in love with the podcast, and I was like, someday I will be on this podcast, and here I am. It's my last, like, Cougar here Basketball home weekend as a Coug, as a student, so yeah. it's a very special week for me. Yeah, it is. Uh, so, Bryce Hendrick has been writing for Coug, how long you been, you was, how long you been doing that now? Um, well, this is my, the end of my second season, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't okay. I, I don't want to do the math on that. But the end of my second season. So a little, little right over a year. A little over a year, end of the second season. Um, so Bryce, if you're not familiar with Bryce's work, Bryce uh, does a lot of the basketball stuff with previews and breakdowns and all sorts of stuff. Um, in that regard, Bryce is the, is the basketball mind on, our, on, on the Coug Center staff uh, for sure. And before we dive into uh, the game against Washington – Lot to talk about there, a lot of chew on there. Um, as we have talked about before, I just kind of want to throw this one up front real quick. Um, SB Nation is cutting off all their podcasts to cut to the chase on that one. That includes us. Um, also includes Michael's show, the Coog Center Hour. Um, so cutting us off. So we are we are working on sort of a permanent solution uh, for where we land in terms of our, our our new home or whatever. But what I can tell you is this: couple things. Okay, so number one is to make sure that you find us. Uh, going forward, there's a couple things you can do. Biggest one is uh, if you listen to us on a podcast service at all, subscribe to us. Make sure you are subscribed uh, because once we find a new sort of home for ourselves in terms of hosting um, the feed, I should be able to update the feed. Everything should be seamless on your end as long as you're subscribed to uh, to the Coog Center uh, spot. Uh, the other thing you can do is I went ahead and started a Substack newsletter. Uh, you can find that at podcastvseveryone.substack.com. Um, and that is also linked on the, on each of the Coog Center posts I've done the last couple of weeks for the podcast. Um, just sign up and subscribe there. Uh, it's an email newsletter. Podcasts will come through there. Um, I've also started doing a little bit of writing, 
there. Uh, in fact, wrote about the Washington game. So that goes straight to your email inbox. Um, it's free. So, uh, and I anticipate it'll stay that way unless we do like a, like a paid tier or something. If, uh, if we decide to do something above and beyond, but, uh, for right now it's, everything's free. Um, so that's the other way that you can make sure you get our podcast cause they will appear there as well. So either subscribe on, you know, iTunes, Apple podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is that you use, um, or, or, and either way, uh, subscribe to the newsletter as well. And then you get, uh, get all the updates on that. Okay. So with that all out of the way, uh, let's talk this Washington game. So ugly, 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 ugly ass game in really every respect, other than the fact that, that we won, uh, the offense was, was horrendous, at least in terms of the shot making ability. And I, that's something I want to get into, um, here with you for sure, Bryce, cause I wrote, I wrote about that and kind of wanted your take on that as well. Um, obviously only scoring 56 points is never a good thing. Um, you go, you go 56 points and that's, it's really bad. It worked out to 0.92 points per possession. It was a really low possession game anyway, so 61 possessions. But uh, really bad, bad, bad shooting. Um, but I maintained in the newsletter that it really wasn't bad offense per se because I measure offense in terms of like what kind of looks are you generating, right? I mean, ultimately results are what matter in the end. That's how we measure everything. But once the game is over and you've already won, it's like, okay, let's – you know, kind of evaluate. And I think that, you know, maybe the best way to look at it is, you know, the sort of from a predictive standpoint. And if we're thinking about a predictive, uh, you know, way to assess it, it's really, you know, how, how were we generating shots? Were we generating clean looks? Were we just missing them? And to my eye, that's kind of how it seemed. So what, what was your take on that? Yeah, I thought, I mean, a lot of our guys just weren't hitting. I mean, JP, just Powell to a 10 from three is always going to kill you. And I would say, most of those looks were pretty open. I, I remember one specifically where it was like wide open in the corner on like a semi-transition play and he just missed real bad. Andre won a five from three. DJ 0 of three. Hopefully his hot streak isn't completely over. It was just, it was a rough shooting game. I will say there were moments I thought it was kind of bad offense. I thought it was really frustrating how long it took us to just put Mo in the high post. Uh, I also thought Mo had a slightly frustrating game by just taking as many 17-footers as he did when he's so much faster than Braxton Mia. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't say it was, like, awful offense. I, I don't think any, like, real single game this season has been truly awful offense, except maybe, uh, was it at Arizona State? Uh, I can't remember exactly. But it's just, we're so reliant, especially against the zone, like on just being able to hit open shots. And usually we have guys who can do that and they just, they just weren't in this game. I mean, uh, I would say the majority of like Andre's and Justin's and TJ's threes were open and TJ was the best shooter out of that group in this game. That's always going to be a uh, frustrating overall outcome. Yeah. It, it sort of surprised me a little bit with, with the number of things like I think, so if someone was inclined to say like, well, it wasn't just that they were missing shots. It's that the offense was, you know, whatever. There were definitely moments where, you know, the offense, I mean, there were multiple shot clock violations, which is just obviously, I mean, it's irritating in any game, but it's really, really, really irritating when if you just get a shot up, you've got a 40% chance of getting it back. Like, because Washington cannot rebound. And so the very worst thing you can do is, either, you know, take a shot clock violation or turn it over in some other fashion. Right. 
So, you know, there were a few of those that were frustrating. Um, there were definitely some possessions that were kind of stalled out, uh, you know, where they just kind of, you know, I think we're honestly just a little too passive. Um, you know, Rakasner, you don't know this cause you were at the game, but Eldridge Rakasner, who was, uh, you know, the color analyst on, on PAC 12 networks, you know, start really with about five or six minutes to go started, you know, sort of, um, chastising, I guess is the word I would use chastising the Cougs for, for really taking the air out of the ball and saying, Oh, they're just, they're, they're slowing down too soon too you know, blah, blah, blah. And the way I watched it, I was kind of like, I don't think they're deliberately slowing it down. I think that they are just, I think they're being overly cautious, right? Because, you know, they've had so many of these close games where they have not performed down the stretch and they have, you know, coughed up a big lead. And, you know, the, rather than, you know, take a, a quick shot that presents itself early in the possession, you know, they decide to pass it up. And then, of course, that's where, um, you know, that's where Washington kind of gets you, right? Like, you know, they're just, they're just going to make you slow down. They're just going to make you slow down and make you try to pick them apart. And if you get an open, good look, you, you kind of need to take it. And it seemed like we were passing up a lot of those, uh, you know, for a while where we could have taken some earlier ones and then maybe it led to some little bit of unnecessary consternation, um, you know, down the stretch. How do you see that playing out with those guys where it's like, because we don't, you know, the biggest thing we, we've talked about this all year, we don't really have a lead guard, right? Like we're, we're kind of fudging it with, um, you know, between Powell and, you know, and sometimes Bombas is kind of handling the ball and, um, you know, Jabe does his fair share when he's in, um, it, you know, since we don't have that guy, do you think, do you feel like that contributes to some of those moments where, um, you know, things just kind of get out of sync a little bit and there's not someone to say, Hey, you know, we're, let's do it. We're doing this. Take that shot. Do this thing. Like I, for, I mean, I hate to be like, rely on like the, the, um, you know, the cliche of the floor general, but also like we, we kind of don't have a floor general. So I, I actually find that uh really interesting because I, I do see Justin Powell as a floor general, at least in, in, in this game specifically, as I was watching, I think he was very conscious of the pace we were playing at and, um, trying to make sure we were constantly setting up offense. Um, there were multiple times where he would kill semi-transition just to stop like kind of right before half court and make sure everyone's looking at him and call a play. Like, I think we do look to him offensively as someone who does that. But the issue is he is, he is risk averse to the extreme. And mm-hmm. I was, I was talking to my girlfriend about this who wasn't listening to me. She doesn't care. But I was talking to her during the game <laughs> because I, I have to narrate basketball while it's happening. And I was like, oh, our issue is that our our guards are so risk averse. And, and to beat a zone, you really do have to make some risky passes. It's just kind of the nature of it, right? Like like a pass to the high post is rarely ever stupid wide open unless they are not worried at all about the threat in the high post. Um UW zone specifically, I, I wrote about this, that it's kind of, they have kind of shifted it to where they bring the corners in and higher a little bit. And, and it leaves the baseline weak more often than it leaves the high post weak. Um, and I, I just, there were multiple times where Justin or Andre could have made a, an entry pass into DJ or, or Mo or, or Kamani in his limited minutes into the high post. But instead they're like, there is a chance that gets picked off. So let me swing it around the perimeter two more times 
and then also not make that pass again. And I think that's what really contributed to that lack of, um, you know, real movement in our offense. It reminded me of watching, I hate to say this because I, I love our staff and I, I want them to take no offense to this. It reminded me of watching old Ernie Kent teams try and beat a zone where it's, we're going to make four or five passes just over the top of the zone. No one it, with Ernie Kent's teams. The issue was we had no one who could operate in the high post with our team. It's just, our guards are, are not going to make those passes. Honestly, Jabe is probably our most ambitious passer, and that's kind of saying something, I feel like. Uh, that That's just sort of where I'm at. I, I wish the issue in this game, and a lot of games it is, lacking that point guard who can run pick and roll, but we're not running pick and roll against a zone. It's just that we're a very risk-averse team in general, and, and that's troubling when you're playing a zone because a zone is all about, beating a zone is all about taking risk and capitalizing on those risks with, with multiple quick decisions. Yeah, it feels like there were times this year where maybe we were a little less risk averse and then it like blew up in our face, right? So I'm thinking, you know, specifically of, you know, UNLV, right? Or Baylor, where it's like, you know, it maybe it didn't didn't quite pan out, <laughs> you know, the way uh that you would want trying to make some of those, you know, high risk, high reward passes. And it seems like we really, really backed off from that. I was even looking at Justin Powell's uh just his stat profile. You know, his assist rate is is only 17%, meaning uh for the for the listeners who aren't kind of familiar with that stat, when he's on the floor, 70% of the shots made by his teammates are assisted by him, okay? Point guards and I know that he's not a pure point guard. Uh at you know, maybe at best he's a combo guard, but like, you know, a point guard, you know, should be, you know, pushing, you know, 25 just sort of like as as a baseline 30 if they're like kind of a pass first kind of guy, even a, a combo guard's usually going to be like 20 plus. So to be at 17 and then you look at the combo, the, the kind of the other half of it, which you mentioned the, the sort of risk aversion, he's a guard whose turnover rate is less than it's sub 12%. And it's hard for me to contextualize for a listener, just how low that is for a guy who handles the ball as much as he does. Like that's really, 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 really low. Like sometimes you'll see big men with with rates like that because they're just not handling the ball hardly at all. Um, you, it's rare that you see a guard who has the ball in his hands as much as he does with a turnover rate that low. So what that tells me is, and we've seen him make passes, right? I mean, we were all gushing after the season opener. You know, that tells me it's a guy who is, like you said, risk averse, right? Like he's not he's not going to make he's not going to try and thread a pass when maybe he could and he might be able to pull it off. But he's like, yeah, you know, I'll hold on to it because it might turn into a turnover. Smith has kind of alluded to that on his coach's show a couple of times too. how, you know, he wishes a little bit that Justin wouldn't be quite so careful. And and I, I kind of agree with him. It's, you know, one of the things that um, John Gassaway, a guy I used to write with a basketball prospectus, would talk about how um, there was a diminishing returns to um, to turnover percentage, basically like the goal is not to turn the ball over the fewest amount of times because chances are, if you're doing that, you're not taking any chances. And if you're not taking any chances, then you're missing out on opportunities. Right. So you're trying to find that equilibrium. I like, do you think it's, it's just sort of a situation where, you know, this is kind of just who he is. Do you feel like it's, it's a thing where he just needs to get a little more comfortable? Like, like there are parts, I mean, like I wish he would be more aggressive offensively too. Like, you know, he makes some terribly difficult shots sometimes, but it also seems like it's only really when he, uh, when, when he's forced to. 
Yeah, it's so it's so hard for me to tell with with Powell like what the you know the reasoning the mechanisms are for his uh, lack of aggressiveness. Um, I think like in a lot of ways it is just natural to who he is when it comes to when he's running pick and roll. He is legitimately a a very bad finisher, um, and that and, and I think that gets in his head. And he's never wanting to put pressure on the rim. He, some of it is he's not able to. He is a uh, not a great athlete getting downhill. Um, but I think he has a legitimate mid-range game. He has a great-looking floater. When he's hunting mm-hmm. that shot, um, yep. I can't remember who that was, or where he went. It was at, uh, Arizona at home, where he was really hunting that floater. And it was great. Like He had like an awesome stretch. But yeah, that that his risk aversion is just super... Um, it, it, it's hard for me to parse. I, some of it could be, maybe he is somewhat cognizant of his stats and, and just sort of general, you know, like what would NBA teams or professional teams overseas be looking for from a potential shooting specialist? Well, if he was a true off guard shooting specialist type, you kind of like low turnovers and, you know, assist rate doesn't matter as much, but for him, someone who is more of that combo, you'd like to see both those numbers higher. I think, you know, Mike Flowers last year, and it took him a while to become a point guard. I would imagine if you only took like the conference part of this schedule, both these numbers would be higher. But his assist rate was 22.1 and his turnover rate was 12.5. That's a super low turnover rate for someone who ran as much pick and roll as he did. And that's yeah. still like noticeably higher than Powell's. Um, and I just think we're, we are, you know, in a lot of ways missing that person to just kind of put something together uh, and and run our offense. And I know we've been lamenting that all season and some of it's Miles Rice, but it it is hard because I, Powell can do it. I really do think he can, uh, if not be a true, you know, every down point guard like Flowers was at times last year, like at the very least the real stop, straw that stirs the drink. And he just hasn't really done that. And the UW game was an interesting, you know, sort of, uh, uh, look at that because it's not in the traditional ways we've seen with him where it's not being able to get downhill out of pick and roll. It's him passing up shots he could take. Instead, it was just him being so risk averse as a standstill passer, as someone who had all the time in the world to make a decision and was still going to make the safe one, make the check down, throw the screen pass type thing. And it was, it was kind of frustrating. I think it was a big reason that our offense stalled so much. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't just him. Andre was also really... And Andre's not even the most risk-averse passer. Like, he's a very um, confident passer in the pick-and-roll. But I, there's something about him. Uh, I, I think he's just he's kind of in his own head, I, Andre, a lot. You can kind of see it watching him play. Um, every every made, you know, every made shot, he's hyped up and he's pointing at the sky and he's pointing at the crowd. And every missed shot, he's, you know, shaking his head and, and putting it down. And I, I think some of that, like, standstill turnover specifically really – bother guys who are like that and uh so it, it was everyone on our team i think we got sort of lucky that um u-dubs offense was so bad because they really could have uh taken advantage of just how uh, kind of timid our offense played i mean our overall shooting was um you know 29 percent from the field 26.7 percent from three we don't win many games like that and our defense was good but I think just as much was UW's offense was laughably bad in this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am with you, by the way, on Powell shooting that mid range, and it all—you know—it sounds like Smith is as well. 
Uh, he also alluded to this on the coaches show um, where he kind of talked about like, like for, you know, they, they sort of harp on, you know, layups and threes, right. Or dunks and threes or whatever. Um, trying to stay away from mid range shots. Um, the exceptions there being, you know, obviously Mo who maybe falls in love with it just a little bit too much, but also they're, you know, they seem pretty comfortable with him taking that shot. And then, you know, he said, Powell, he said, that's a good shot for him. You know, if he wants to take it, um, it feels like they maybe are trying to trying to nudge him in that direction a little bit. Cause it, I mean, when you watch him shoot that mid range, it's like, I, I mean, it just, it looks so pure and it looks so easy. Um, you know, and there are people, I mean, you're, you know, you're obviously very familiar with, uh, you know, different players and different molds and, and things like that. But there are guys who can make that shot with regularity. And for a guy who is, um, you know, six foot six, like he is, he doesn't have to get that much separation in that mid range area to get his shot off. Um, typically he's going to be going against shorter guards, which is part of the reason why, as you mentioned, you know, he doesn't, um, maybe he's not as good at getting all the way to the rim, getting downhill, you know, as maybe some other people are at six foot six, not an explosive athlete, but at six foot six, you know, maybe you use some of that, you know, against your, the guy who's guarding you, especially if he's a little smaller, you know, put him on skates just a little bit. And then, you know, now you've got the, you know, the six inches or whatever you need to, to squeeze off a mid range. So yeah, I, I definitely love to see him develop that. Um, I'd also love to see him stick around for another year. I don't, you know, I don't know uh, what his plans are. I know he's, he's kind of, he's bounced around. Nobody seems to really know, but um, but man, he really seems like a guy um, who, if he sticks around, um, you know, could really develop some of this other stuff. Uh, one guy who is not generally lacking for uh, confidence in uh, hunting his own shots or or taking care of his uh, offensive game is a guy named Noah Williams, who came back to Pullman for the first time. We talked about this last week and you'd have to be, uh, I don't know, dead or something to not have known that it was happening. Uh, Noah came back. Uh, played and had a pretty decent game. Um, did get a little hobbled there at one point. Um, he got he got a foul called on TJ after he stepped on Braxton Mia's foot, which was uh, which was kind of funny. But not funny was that he uh, appeared to tweak the knee that that he had uh, injured earlier in the season, and never want to see that. But um, it seemed like I mean I, I think I was I was surprised and impressed by how he handled himself. Uh, you know, he certainly did not uh, play outside himself. He did not try to take over the game. He did not um, do all the things that we, I think we sort of assumed that he would try and do, uh, you know, to, to sort of, you know, stick it to to Smith or, or whomever is the uh, imagined foe here. Um, and, and I found that really interesting that, that he didn't do that. Um, I don't know, maybe, Maybe he should have done more. I don't know. Like what, what was kind of your take on that situation? Cause he was, he was playing pretty decently. And a lot of those shots went to other guys who were not playing uh, nearly as well as he was. I honestly do wonder if Hopkins had like a long talk with him. So I believe Noah was like, he, he had a, uh, like coach's decision, uh, DNPCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that against UCLA? Against UCLA. Yeah. Against UCLA. And I just, I do wonder if there's a bit of like, Hey, if you want to stay around at the Pac-12 le- level, like you gotta screw your head on straight a little bit. And uh, you know, Noah is a is a complex figure in WSU lore. Um, yeah, I I would say you would probably have been hard pressed to find people who really missed him. Uh, both those who um, you know were fans of the team and those who had had any interaction with Noah. Um, but like you said, he really handled it like 
pretty professionally, I thought. He was never... Uh, the most he did was there was someone in the front row who was, like, yelling at him during the National Anthem. And he was, like, laughing and he kind of, like, waved goodbye before he went and did his, like, signature pregame hang on the rim. Um, I thought, honestly, and, and I hate to say this, the bad guys in this situation in a lot of ways was WSU, like... Yeah. <laughs> the, the student section, and I did not partake in this despite sitting in the front row, was uh, chanting fuck you noah a lot and i was i just think that's so lame i don't know i I also think like like fuck the huskies okay i i get it we could be more clever than that but okay if you if we want to be blunt i don't hate it but like fuck a specific player is so lame to me and wazoo reject is like way better and has the same and it was right there it's right there and then at the end of the game so obvious at the end of the game noah's shooting free throws and we finally start chanting wazoo reject and tj and mo like gesture to the crowd like keep it coming uh i think he made both those free throws actually but he uh, did <laughs> but um yeah i mean Noah had but a, still Noah had 12 points on uh, on efficient yeah. four of eight two of four shooting i do think that if he would have tried to do more uh it would have been an issue i thought defensively he was kind of rough um he just seems out of place in his own like he's not well yeah He's not that. He's a man-to-man defender. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like his strength. Like is, he, yeah. It, like it, it's so weird to me. And this team, like I, like there are five defenses a zone, but it's so funny to me. Like I think you know Braxton Mia playing in a drop, and Keon Brooks is like a low man help defender with Noah, PJ Fuller, you know Jamal Bay, Corin Johnson as as guys who can all guard at the point of attack. Like I feel like this could be like a top forty-five ish defense in the country if they played traditional man but instead they're playing this zone and I, I don't know like wcu didn't do a great job of exploiting it but the game i watched usc just like picked it apart despite not having like boogie and drew peterson making shots like trey yeah. trey white was getting everything on baseline cuts and uh it's just it, i hate zone i will i will die on that hill that zone sucks and i hate anytime i see zone i was watching middle school girls basketball and they were running zone this week, and I was getting driven nuts. I'm like, just play man-to-man. You're not teaching them anything by having to play zone. But um, other than Noah, though, like, there were not a ton of bright spots for UW's offense in this one. It was just like, I mean, Keon Brooks, and I said this coming into the year, there are a lot of people who were very excited about his addition to UW, and I was like, he is not a good, positive basketball player. He does not contribute to winning in any meaningful way. He is a, you know, I hate the term stat stuffing scorer, um, but like that's what he does just doesn't work in modern basketball. It's all like post face ups, but he's six, six and, you know, Keon Menafield, who's usually really good, had a pretty rough game. He couldn't really hit shots. We got lucky that he missed a couple open threes that um, I thought should have gone in. Cole Bajama continues to just be a no show. Um, Their offense, like, could not generate any open looks. They run, they run like a ton of very old school sets. Um, and their best look was honestly just posting up Braxton Mia, uh, especially against the Drame Jong. Uh, that was their best offense. Uh, shout out to Drame for having three fouls in yeah. less than one. I believe it's yeah. three fouls in what is credited as two possessions. Um, yes. So shout out that to is, for that. That is the one... I was going to say that is the one thing that Rick Hasner actually got right 
because I I pick I poke fun at him a lot. Like he, there there was one time where you know the the Cougs passed into the high post and he went on and on about how that's the soft spot in the zone and and Washington was actually playing man on that possession. So so that was pretty funny. But um, the one thing he actually got right was uh, the very first possession that Adrame comes in and Mia just goes right at him. And he gets, you know, knocked backward 10 feet and, and dunked on basically. I, or maybe it wasn't a dunk, but still it was, it was ugly. Right. And Rick Astor was like, he can't play. He cannot play in this game. He's going to be a good player someday. He cannot play in this game. Cause he cannot, he cannot do anything against Braxton Mia. And I'm like, you're overreacting. And then like about two possessions, there's like, yep, he needs to go to the bench and not come back into this game because he just yeah he just you know me is kind of a bit of a load you know and he's uh he's not the most fleet of foot guy he can catch he can dunk um but also you know i guess if he's got a hundred pound advantage then he's gonna you know he's gonna knock some people over so um there was definitely some of that brooks to me is you know again it's i think your your characterization of him is um you know is a solid one you know when you're dealing with a guy who is using you know 28% of possessions, um, which honestly actually is a little bit lower than I thought when I was kind of looking at it. Um, I thought he was maybe closer to 30, but you know, to use that many possessions, his offensive rating is 96 and a half. His offensive rating in pack 12 play is a little bit higher. So 98, right. Uh, using 28 and a half percent possessions, 30% of the shots, 31% of the shots um, to be using that many possessions and have your, um, you know, have your, your offensive rating under a hundred. Um, that's, that's not usually a winning formula, right. For an offense. Cause you've got to, you know, if a guy is, is take playing that many minutes, he's playing 80% of them or 88% of the minutes in conference play, taking that many shots, playing that many minutes. Um, yeah, he's, you know, scoring a fair number of points, you know, looks good. Oh, he scored, you know, 20, whatever points and however many straight games, but, um, you know, at that kind of efficiency, you know, it's, it's tough for an offense to, to really kind of, you know, get anything going when that's happening. And, and I think part of it is too, you know, kind of what you were talking about where it's like, it's the kind of shots that he takes too, which is a little weird. It's, I know it's not the same as a post up, but it kind of is like in the sense, like almost like a big man back down post up where, you know, you're going to, you're going to shoot what is a contested shot and you're probably not getting an offensive rebound. Like, and that is, that's, you know, it's tough for an offense, um, to live that way. And I, you know, I don't know, man, after I, I kind of, I tend to think that a three point shot is something you can develop, but maybe Keon Brooks is evidence that it's not because he's like, he's on, he's on year four here. He's shooting more threes than he ever has. And he's still shooting like 28%. I don't know. Yeah. At one, two. I think I think a good way to characterize like how he plays is he plays like he plays like Mo, but he's five inches shorter than Mo and has a worse first step and worse touch around the rim. Um, so like take that for what you. It's also a, a worse offensive rebounder. Um, so just like he's and and Mo does not play the most efficient brand of basketball. I love Mo, but the but we are using Mo as like a wing and he's a big. Uh, so to use an actual wing in in that type of offensive role is just it's just not a sustainable way to create good offense and we've seen that with their numbers I will say uh I thought that our initial strategy from our staff defensively was a really frustrating one 
and it allowed UW to stay in this game for a long time when I feel like we should have been able to put it away early in the first yeah. half. Uh, we and we, and we do this all the time. We hard hedge Mo. We get him all the way out on the floor and trust our backside help to be there. And and we have, you know, Andre Akmovsky is one of the best low man rotators in the country. DJ Rodman is not bad at that as well. But Braxton Mio was just getting everything he wanted. U-Dubs usually has an issue with ball movement, but the ball was snapping around for them in this one. I think Metafield was doing a great job at just getting the ball out of his hands to beat the hedge and getting the ball into Mia. Uh, and, and Mia scored quite a few points or got fouled um, and shot his weird one-handed uh, free throw pretty consistently. Uh, and we changed up. We, we fixed that. And eventually we started doing this more like, I, I would call it like a high catch where, um, you know, he wasn't all the way out to hedge and he didn't have to recover so far. Um, so Mia wasn't getting like these straight post-ups. Instead, Mo could recover. And we kind of baited some of UW's bad shooters into taking, you know, threes. And it worked out for us for the most part. Um, so I, I, I like the adjustment our staff made. But I do think like that initial strategy was um, a, a flawed one, even though it is the one we tend to go with. And I'm interested to see, uh, you know, how we adjust for a team like Oregon this week, because, you know, they also have a big bruising big who will be able to take advantage of our our smaller guys uh, who are low men in help uh, against a hedge. So I'm interested to see if we've kind of changed or if we're still going to trust our base strategy and if they beat it, adjust from there. Uh, that's something I think our staff is really, really good at adjusting both in a game and in general. I think people have not given enough credit to the fact that we have completely torn down and rebuilt our offense this season. I don't think people realize how hard that is. I mean, imagine like a Jay Wright Villanova team, like running what they normally run with their spread guards, turn and post pick and roll offense. And then immediately the next year being like, actually, we're going to play chin. It's, it's really like not something our staff gets enough credit for that. They have changed the offense so fundamentally uh, over the course of one off season. Um, and the fact that we are a good, successful offense this year is a miracle in and of itself. Um, but I'm interested to see if that, if we adjust pregame for a team like Oregon, or if we wait and see if they beat our uh, first kind of go-to defensive strategy. So before we go on to Oregon State and Oregon this weekend, um, I actually just have one more question I, I, I have for you, and I want to get your thoughts. Uh, should we be concerned about Kamani at this point? Oh, this is right for the heart. I, <laughs> I mean, look, we, we are both, we are both absolutely Kamani truthers, right? Like we are, we, we are on board. We love his tools. We love what he can bring. Um, we love his athleticism. We see the potential as a, you know, as, as a point guard, like as a you know point guard, combo guard, whatever, like, you know, just kind of a, uh, really just sort of a high volume, high possession type player, like potential superstar NBA, like, could he like is a lottery, the ceiling for, I mean, like all this stuff. Right. And he has been bad for a while now and his stats have sort of plummeted, um, to the point where he played what three minutes, I think against Washington. Um, like truly he's, he's kind of barely playable at this point. Um, and that is a thing I, I know that it's, you know, pretty normal for freshmen to have, you know, Rocky stretches, but, um, but this is a particularly bad one <laughs> where he played five minutes against Arizona. 
on uh, January 26th, uh, made one bucket and that was it. 22 minutes against Arizona state. He was okay in that one. Uh, 14 minutes against USC was pretty bad. Uh, 18 minutes against UCLA was very bad and then, uh, didn't play against Washington. So all of that to say, to lay all that context out, like what's your feeling on this? Should we read? Is is there something to read into this or is it just normal freshman, um, normal freshman, you know, whatever tough times. I would say it's not like normal freshman tough times because it's more fundamental to who he is as a player. But I would also say I am far from ready to give up on him. I still think he is like NBA good as soon as after next season. The biggest issue with Kamani is that he does not fit our slow the ball down, make good decisions, maximize possessions uh, style as a as an offense right now. And I think we've had this, this discussion in the Slack. I maybe even posted this on Twitter. Like Kamani's strength is or his best role, I should say, is as like a transition ball handler. Because that's like, and if you've noticed, like all his best plays, his highlight dunks, all that stuff, it's either come when he's as a cutter uh, off the ball or in transition or semi-transition where he has one guy to beat, he does it. If the low man rotates, he's he's good at making dump offs or like corner skips, or he will, you know, rip the rim off the basket because he is that type of athlete. Um I think, you know, I, I I hope he has a good attitude about things. That's always your worry anymore, right? Is like the transfer portal's always right there. Uh you gotta hope he has a good attitude about things. But I still like I still believe that he could be even a positive half court player. He's just so erratic as a decision maker right now, um, that it's really kind of been a a a, a bar in the way of him being a, a positive rotation player. Um I I'm still not like all the way there with like Dylan Darling being ahead of him in the rotation or Carlos Rosario for that matter. Um, I, I get it. Like, like specifically Carlos, I think we assume can shoot more and doesn't demand the ball as much. Um, but Kamani, I still think is like a great on ball defender who can make some plays off the ball, even though we're not a team that does that. I'm just interested to see if we kind of mix the offense up next year a little bit. If we're trying to, yeah. if we're like, Hey, this is a guy who we need to make sure is really, a huge part of it, then I think we'll need to. But you know, if 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 like all three of Justin, Jabe, TJ, well, and then four, if you count like Andre, if those four all return, you know, is Kamani necessarily starting? I don't know. Uh, it, it's hard to say. Um, but I, I think there's still upside there. I think I, I even think he could run like half court pick and roll. Honestly, part of the issue is that Mo is not a very good role man, um, like at all. It, it's it's um, there's a lot of I, I love Mo. There's a lot of like very specific big man things that he is pretty rough at. And, and it does make it hard for me to see him translating to the NBA. Uh, we've talked about the rim protection a little bit, but also like, you know, setting screens and rolling to the rim. Like he always wants those little short pocket passes, but Kamani someone who is never going to make a pocket pass. He's never going to get guarded where a pocket pass is really the, the best option because no one's ever going to go over a screen against him. His thing is, if you go under, it doesn't matter because he's so fast and so explosive that he's going to get to the rim. So if he brings that help, like Mo needs to be in the dunker spot to catch a lob. But that's Mo is more of a one-foot leaper. He's not really... I think he's maybe caught like... He's caught a couple lobs, but the only one I can really remember was against Arizona State last year. 
that TJ threw him. And that was an off one leg lob. Like he's not like a great dunker spot lob catcher like a drama is. That's a drama's biggest strength on offense. It's just standing underneath the basket and catching a lob. Um, and I think those two could have great chemistry in time. I just, I, I am far from, from willing to give up on Kamani. I, I watched all his FIBA games when we signed him and I'm like, this guy's a star. Uh, it's just going to take some time. And I, I'm, I still believe in that. There's not many guys with his combination of, uh, you know, handle creativity, uh, superb athleticism, size and passing feel, even if the passing is super erratic. I know that uh 30% turnover rate is very scary. Uh, and it's why he's not playing more now, but I'm, I'm still all in on him long-term. Yeah, I think I am too. Um, my understanding is that he, he's actually really enjoying himself in Pullman, uh, to the point where he is, is sort of a, uh, an advocate, let's say for, uh, you know, people that he knows coming to Pullman to play. So, um, I, I do, I do think there's that piece. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that I, maybe it shouldn't go unsaid that now Washington obviously was not, um, you know, it's not a super, super tough opponent. Uh, but you know, this, his worst stretch coming here, um, maybe it's not coincidental that it really is, um, in WSU's toughest stretch of the season. You know, they've played, uh, you know, five out of seven games against teams that, uh, Ken Palm would consider a level team. So basically it's, uh, for lack of a better term, it's like, it's kind of like top 50 teams that you play at home and then top I think 75 teams that you play on the road or something like that. Um, and so anyway, you know, Utah at Utah, at Colorado, uh, Arizona at home, uh, at USC, at UCLA. Those are all really tough games, really, really tough games. And so the fact that he has struggled in that stretch, maybe, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't read too much into it because those are really, really good flipping teams. And, um, you know, it's, you know, any freshman adjusting to things are going to, you know, maybe struggle at that point. Um, so let's move on to Oregon state and Oregon, uh, just kind of real quick, give them like the 10 minute preview here. Uh, now Smith was, I don't know how much time you've had to, to sort of dig into the, dig into the video on these guys yet, but, um, for talking to Oregon state first, uh, 202nd ranked team in Ken Palm, uh, which of course is, is quite bad. Um, but, uh, you know, they've, they've done, they've done enough here to be sort of like dangerous, I guess. Like, uh, you know, they beat Callaway, whatever Cal's even, you know, worse than they are. Uh, but they did beat Colorado at home. Uh, they did beat USC at home in their last game. So, um, you know, not a complete and total train wreck, uh, but, um, obviously still a pretty bad team. Smith kind of went out of his way to make them sound like they were, you know, pretty good. And it was like, it is like, eh, I'm not sure if I'm buying that buddy, but um, I don't know, like kind of what you thought, like how dangerous of a game is this? I mean, any, any conference opponent is dangerous. Obviously last year, you know, they were even worse last year and we, I think went to overtime in Corvallis. So, um, you know, they were worse, but, uh, you know, any team's dangerous. How, how dangerous is this game? Do you think for, uh, for the Cougs? I would say not, it shouldn't be that dangerous. They're another team whose uh, biggest strength is that opponents are just not shooting well against them. Uh, and now I said that about UW and we shot poorly against UW despite getting a lot of open shots. So maybe that Jedi mind trick defense is like a real thing. <laughs> um, but yeah. for the most part, I'm someone who, 
just believes that there's just a lot of shooting luck in college basketball. You know, NBA seasons are double the length of college basketball seasons, and that's why that stuff tends to even out over the course of an NBA season uh, and the and the length of minutes that are played in the NBA. But in college, you can have whole seasons where a team that is not guarding the three-point line, like the way the, the Cougs do, where the only real way to guard a three-pointer is to make sure they don't shoot it. Um, but, like, you know, Oregon State allows a ton of threes, uh, 229th in the country in opponent three-point attempt rate, but opponents are only shooting 31.7% against them. Uh, they tend to play, I, I wouldn't even say two bigs, like just like two bigger guys who are slow. They're not bigs in the traditional like post-up sense or like rim runner sense, but they are bigs in the sense that they can't guard on the perimeter. Um, and they're also just super young. And I think that's the one thing that makes them slightly dangerous is that they are full of like young guys with a ton of talent. I, I, and, and this might be like unpopular. I don't know. I love Wayne Tinkle. I think he's a very good coach who just happens to be at one of the hardest jobs in the country. Um, and you know, like the only the WSU and Oregon state are probably the two hardest basketball coaching jobs in the country. at like the high major level. Um, and he does like a hell of a job, I think in, uh, recruiting as best he can. And I think his scheme is generally solid. Uh, you know, Jordan Pope is a guy who I think is going to be really solid come his junior season, senior year. But right now he's just fairly inefficient using a good amount of possessions. It's not even like, he's not like Noah inefficient. He's 56.5% true shooting is not awful for a six, two guard. You know, Glenn Taylor can go off for big games. Uh, Tyler Bilodeau, shout out from Kamaikin. My brother, shout out to him, did hit a three over him one time during his freshman year. <laughs> um, is yeah, he, he was not six nine then. To be fair, he is six nine now. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like they're just super young. They're just full of of youth. Uh, you know, even guys like like Jaden Stevens was from uh, G Prep, who doesn't play a ton, but I think has played a little bit more recently. Um, so I there's. I, I this game shouldn't be dangerous, especially because they don't have anyone who I think can guard Mo. Uh, you know, Rodriguez Andela is not someone I trust to really stay in front. Casey Abekway is super foul prone. It's like when Kabakita was guarding Mo for Utah. Like I just don't trust him to not put his hands all over him. Uh so Mo should have a good game. Again, we'll have a size advantage. Um Last year, uh, TJ Bamba made Glenn Taylor's life hell. Like I felt so, I I felt bad for Glenn Taylor watching TJ Bamba guard him. So, uh, you know, I, I trust that to happen again if, if TJ's healthy. This I don't think it should be a problem, uh, but you never know. Jordan Pope could go off for you know thirty, and suddenly it's it's a it's a game that uh, you know we're we're shaking our fist at the sky. But honestly, the the bigger yeah. thing is it, it sucks that we didn't get. To play Oregon State twice, we only get to play it once this year. I know it's uh, it, when I look at Oregon State, their offense is just so horrendous. Like it's it's the twelfth ranked offense in the conference, um, which is really saying something when you play in the same conference as Cal. And you know they they do shoot the three okay. Um, honestly, they shoot the by percentage in conference play. They shoot the three better than we do, um, but they don't take a ton of threes, and then you know, playing us, we are the best team in the conference at running people off the line. So, you know, they're, they're not going to have a ton of open looks from three, you know, and you look at that and go, well, that's, you know, probably their best shot, uh, you know, sort of no pun intended is to, um, you know, is to, to have, you know, one of those high variance, 
you know, kind of shooting nights. Um, and we just generally don't really let teams, uh, do that. So yeah, I, I feel pretty comfortable with it. Um, I hope the team does not feel comfortable with it. I hope they're scared to death and, um, are properly prepared for that game, but you know, we'll see. And hopefully they're not looking ahead to Oregon on the weekend, uh, because that team, you know, it's, it's, I, number one, I imagine there's a little bit of revenge factor there, right? You know, they lost to Oregon, uh, down in Eugene during, in December. Right. Um, and then beyond that, you know, Oregon is, is kind of surging and Oregon has, um, you know, they've gotten a bunch of their guys back who weren't there when we played them the first time. Um, just kind of thoughts on Oregon. It seems like, uh, Will Richardson really gave us the the most trouble last time. Uh, really, we handled Dante pretty well until it started to kind of get away from us in the second half. But um, yeah, do you, how do you see that game? Um, what kind of like maybe maybe I'll put you in this role. You know, put yourself in the coach's shoes. You know, how do you tweak strategy in this one um, to have a little more success, or or is it maybe a little bit more of a crapshoot just because the personnel's different? Yeah, I mean. I think my biggest takeaway is that there is not a lot to take away from that first game. Uh, I mean, Will Richardson did kill us. It's important to note that like almost all his points came when guarded by Dylan Darling, who I love Dylan. I, I think Dylan is going to be a very good player yep. eventually, but he is not built to guard Will Richardson as a freshman in what was, I believe his first pack 12 game. Um, and it showed Will Richardson cooked him consistently. Will Richardson is also probably seven inches taller. I know that uh, Dylan is listed at 6'2". I stood next to Dylan no. last week. He is <laughs> not 6'2". Six six two. Two. Um, <laughs> but Will Richardson is probably a legitimate 6'5". He's a, he's a very big point guard. And it showed, like it just showed in that last one. He just... Um, I, I think, you know, having Andre Peck is so huge. I It goes underrated how big of a loss not having Andre was in those early yeah. games. Because yeah. he is our best defender. And I've gotten pushback on that, and I will stand by it because very few players of his size can make the defensive rotations he does. Uh, he is an elite low man defender, and that is one of the most, if not the most valuable thing to have, especially when your big is not a great rim protector and you're playing in a hard hedge scheme. Um, I imagine we will keep hard hedging. Um, I imagine we will keep letting Oregon cast away from three with their kind of you know, mediocre shooters. Um, but, you know, they have, they'll have they uh, have some guys back who they just didn't have in their last one. And I, I, I'm not sure how it'll go. I hate to, I hate to like, like pull games down to individual matchups, but at a certain point, like, I think it really is going to be, can Mo just beat and fall a consistently with his offensive game? He did in the last one and we still lost, but I, I think, you know, having Andre back is enough of a swing, um, you know, Hopefully, Jabe's shot is still here. Uh, that would be huge for us. Um, I think our chest actions are a really good match for how they play defense. Um, Oregon isn't like, they're not like absurd at allowing threes or running guys off the line. They tend to just be kind of middle of the road. They're 194th in opponent three-point attempt rate, which is on the lower side, but not like extreme. Um, you know, but I, I think our chest actions worked really well in that last game. We got some good shots. Uh, I, I just, now that we have a little more chemistry, uh, and, and they work a little better, you know, DJ is playing better than he was at that point. Uh, he's more of a threat to shoot out of those actions. So I stick with the game plan we had in the first one. I think we could have won that game. It just, once it slipped, it really slipped. 
and that's basketball for you. You know, it's just, it's classic. It's a game of runs. Um, but really work to just get Mo his high post touches, run those chess sets, let him blow by and follow you because I, I, like Mo has proven that even though I don't love the mid range shot, like if you just leave him open, he'll take that and he'll, he'll make enough that it's solid offense at the college level. So you can't just allow him to turn and face and take an elbow jumper every time. But if Mo, if Dante is all the way out and Mo can, you know, do that shimmy rip drive he loves to do, it's something he can really, I think he can really put Dante in trouble and their depth behind him, as much as I love Khalil Ware, like Ware has not had a great season this year. And it seems like Dana Altman trusts him less and less every game. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think I think this is a good matchup for us. Oregon is hot. It would be a huge win. I hope the energy in the arena is great. I still have fond memories from last year's win where uh, I went crazy as Will Burkhart hit a three. Um, so I, I, I trust our game plan. I trust our staff in this one. But you never know with a team like Oregon that's so based on, you know, just they just, they just played a talent. And uh, Dana Allman's scheme is all about Will Richardson and Folly Dante. You guys, you know, we're building this this scheme to get you guys your buckets. So um, if our defense is on point and, and Mo is playing well, it should be a game. If not, then it might be an issue. Yeah, it's definitely the part that concerns me. I think I think we'll score just fine. Um, but it's, it's the defense a little bit. Um, Oregon actually has the second most efficient offense in PAC 12 play, um, which is not something that I expected to see. So that is that, that's something and it's mainly built on two point percentage. They're making 56% on their twos. Number one in uh, conference play. Uh, whereas we not so great <laughs> against twos. Uh, that's kind of been a, a bugaboo this year, kind of up and down, uh, to me, that's that's where I see it. You know, if we're going to it, we might actually, as you mentioned, kind of have to flip the script a little bit and entice them into jacking up some of those threes at, at the expense of maybe uh, protecting the paint. That's not what Smith likes to do, but he may he may sort of choose to do that. Uh, the Oregon game, of course, marks your final final game as a student in Pullman. Uh, going there, sitting in that front row all these years. Uh, how how you feeling about that? I I confess that I do not remember my final game at Beasley from when I was a student. But also, uh, that was the end of the Kevin Eastman era, and it was rather forgettable. You know, it's hard to really put into perspective like um, my time as like a basketball fan in WSU because by one year where I was just a fan, I was uh, it was during COVID. And I was just, I, all the games I watched on zoom with my dad, just in my apartment. Um, so it wasn't like I was, you know, at Beasley being all into it. And then last year I had already started writing for you guys by the time the season had started. Um, but I, I, I think I, it's hard to say like uh disappointment. I, there was a part of me that really thought we were going to get to an NCAA tournament uh, before the end of my, college career because I really believed in Smith that much. But, you know, last year, like, like hosting a postseason game that that's still like one of my all time memories um, just because it's something WCU has done, you know, once since I got to double digits um, and I, you know, seeing, you know, future lottery pick Jalen Williams in Beasley and uh, us taking it to Santa Clara and then eventually making it to New York. Like, I, I think I leave 
WSU with just a lot of optimism um, that are a lot of trust in our staff that the, the honestly, the biggest issue of these last two years has been a lot luck based. It's been injuries. It's been, you know, maybe opponent shooting luck. It's been some struggles in the clutch and, you know, clutch stuff isn't all luck, but generally statistically it tends to be mostly luck. You know, maybe an Ed Cooley gets away with just being a great clutch coach, but other than him, it's it's mostly luck, and that goes for professional basketball too in a lot of ways. Um, so I I think eventually this team is going to be I I think Kyle Smith is going to be the coach who breaks through. I I, I plant my flag in that that eventually yep. Kyle Smith will take us to an NCAA tournament, and I think it, I think it could have been this year. I think this team is absolutely talented enough and well coached enough. It's just, things just didn't fall that way. In Pullman, you lose two scholarship players before the season. Good fucking luck. That's just, that's just how it goes. And then you also have, you know, other guys miss any, any games, much less the specific games they missed. You know, you played a very hard schedule. You don't get to your easy part of the schedule for us until we're exhausted and beaten down. And now, you know, like, like if we had played Oregon State in the midst of our, like, you know, impressive run against UCLA and USC and then we beat Arizona I'd be like yeah we'll we'll beat Oregon State by 25 but now it's like the end of the season you're like we're probably tired our Mo played 40 minutes against UW and he's played I think above 36 minutes in just about every single game in Pac-12 play um you know guys just get tired at the end of the season sometimes they're your conditioning is only so good as a college athlete um but I, I'm I'm very excited, and of course, you know, not not to begrudge. Like this is also my last game watching the women's team here, and uh, that's also very exciting. And I, a part of me watching like senior night, I'll be like, a part of me feels connected to our, our seniors who will be getting their flowers. So excited, nervous, slightly sad, but overall like hopeful for the future of WSU basketball. And by the way, I did just look this up. My last game as a student was a 64-58 loss to number seven Stanford at Beasley Coliseum. And again, still no recollection of hey, the game. A, we, only lost by, we only lost by six to number seven? Yeah, how about that? Yeah, Kevin Eastman coached the game of his life, probably. What, in that what one, year was that? Uh, this was 1999. So this was, uh, this was uh, February 1999. Uh, the next week they went to uh, Southern California and proceeded to lose 100 to 61 to UCLA and 83, 62 to USC. And then they went to Washington to finish up the season losing 76, 59. So, you know, and then is- uh, not too, not too long after that, Kevin Eastman was out of a job and we were hiring Paul Graham. Boy, that oh, was- what an upgrade. All time upgrade. Right what there. an upgrade. I, uh, <laughs> you know, who else was probably in the stands watching us almost, compete with Stanford in that game. Don't, don't tell me your dad. It was my dad. I think my dad also graduated <laughs> in, I think my dad was 99 and then he went back in like 2000. Oh, I love so, it. I love yeah. it. I love it. I know I, I could be your dad actually. So by the way, I've never met your dad, but it definitely sounds like your dad and I would get along. You Thanks. and him are the exact age and have the same interests. So I'd be, and you're both <laughs> teachers. I'd be shocked if you guys would not be fast friends. Yeah, we probably, we probably would. Uh, you did mention, okay, the women wrapping up their season at, at home as well. Uh, same two teams. If it's it's kind of a weird weekend. Not too often we get both teams home um, on the same weekend. Usually it's it's the opposite. And so both teams are playing the Oregon schools this weekend, which is 
kind of a cool deal. If I had been, if I'd been thinking ahead, I would have taken a couple days off work and just gone to Pullman for like four days and watched basketball for, for four days. But, um, regardless, we got Oregon state, Oregon coming to town. Um, not, not in that order, Oregon, then Oregon state. Um, yeah, kind of a, kind of a tricky spot here for the, for the women in the sense that, you know, one of the things I've sort of maintained is that, you know, with the, with the win over Oregon and the win over Arizona, both on the road, um, that the team is, they're already safe in the tournament provided they don't, you know, face plant to end the season. And, and it's not like they're in the middle of a face plant, uh, cause they're definitely not, um, you know, but they did, they have lost three out of four. Um, now all of them very explainable. Uh, let's see, they got obliterated by Stanford, which I mean, is, is that's just sort of the deal, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Stanford went and lost to Washington two days later. So, uh, apparently Stanford is mortal to some people, but not to us, uh, beat Cal as, as they should. Um, and then they go on the road mountain trip, uh, lose the close one in Colorado. Uh, and then of course lose to Utah and Utah is, is really a really, really good team. Uh, so now, you know, you're left with four games to finish the season, Oregon, Oregon state, UCLA, USC, the last two on the road. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a little tricky, man. If you don't, you know, if you don't kind of sweep this weekend and then, um, you know, you, you go down to UCLA and USC and potentially lose both of those. Not that I am predicting that, but you know what I mean? It's, those are two really good teams. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I don't know. I guess you could play yourself onto the bubble at this point, but I don't know, man. Like what's, what's kind of your take on, on the importance of these games, Oregon, Oregon state, um, and, and the likelihood that, you know, that we might get back on the right track against, uh, one against an Oregon team that we've already beat. Uh, we already beat both of them, but you know, an Oregon team is pretty good that we already beat. Let's, let's start there with Oregon. Well, I definitely know that, uh, we th- are treating this as a must win. And, um, I, I think that's very important. Like we have a major sense of urgency about ourselves right now. And, um, our, our staff is great at handling that and not like putting too much pressure, but, you know, just applying the right amount. Um, I think that you, you probably can't get, if you get swept, you have to win a tournament game. If you lose these last four, um, it's, it becomes a real, uh, real issue. And, and something that like is notable with Oregon specifically is they are also, probably feeling the heat a little bit. They also feel like they need a, um, a kind of boost to, to, to make sure they're in a good spot with the tournament because they've had some tough losses, including to us. And um, they're hungry. They're not, they're not going to just sleep on us. Um, they will. Come I imagine in. they're pissed. Like, uh, let's, let's just be plain about it. They probably feel like that game down there got stolen from them. Right. Cause that was the one with all the weird officiating and the, the ball that got through, they had this miraculous comeback. The ball gets thrown in, turned over, knocked to a player. She drains a three, but wait a second. No, the clock didn't start. And this whole disaster, like I imagine they feel really hard done and all of that well, and, abs- and are probably pretty pissed. Absolutely. And, you know, also like, you know, they found bell out. Okay. At least it's going to OT. And then Jess goes for seven and OT yeah. and it's, and it's, oh, yeah this player that they probably had barely even scouted is who beat them in the end. And, you know, of course in that one, uh, their big went down early, their big six, eight center, um, went down in like early in the, in the first half, I think even in my, I don't even think she got to the second half. Um, and they were kind of playing without her. They are a very 
good team. Uh, they can really shoot the ball. They have a, a lot of scorers. Um, they play fast. I, I think that's something that, like, for me, like being on the practice squad, something I've really noticed is every team in the Pac-12 tends to play very fast. And it's, it's except for, like, us in Stanford. And it's kind of interesting that we are so deliberately paced that that we are almost um no like we are very noticeably different from a lot of those other Pac-12 teams with being so slow paced and uh we match up well with them I think you know Charlize having a stretch of games uh remember the last time we played Oregon she had missed the prior week um so having a stretch of games to be healthy to be getting a rhythm going I think is huge for her um it's a, it's a tough one. Oregon is just a they're just a very solid team. Uh, the whole Pac-12 is nutty. Um, Kyle Smith was I, I I was at Beasley today and Kyle Smith was talking to Coach Laurie and he was like, oh, it's like the Big Twelve for men's, and that's a great comparison. You know, if you follow yes. men's college yes, basketball, the Pac-12 is just like the Big Twelve, where it's like the difference is you know like in in the Big Twelve and men's you have like maybe one break with Oklahoma state. And you could argue that you have two in the pac 12 with, with Cal and Arizona state. But even then, I mean, there are nine teams with like legitimate cases for, you know, a a tournament berth in the pac 12 and every team is talented. And even Oregon state, like who has had their issues this year has a, one of their freshmen was a top 10 recruit in the country who went to fucking Oregon state. Like it's just, Every team in the Pac-12 is nuts, and it should be a testament in general to our staff that we are even having this conversation about the tournament, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge push at the end of the season, and the one thing I'll keep coming back to is if only the, the home and road with Colorado, Utah, UCLA, USC could have been flipped, because if we could have, if we had missed Charlize on the road and lost those games, it still hurts, but it's not such a big sting, but suddenly you lose those games at least some of them, especially the one that stands out to me is Utah. We should have won anyway. That Ula Tech drives me nuts still. But with Charlie's, we definitely would have won. And then suddenly you have another top 10 win on your resume or top 25 win on your resume, the only top 10 win. And you're so much less worried about this stretch, even though it was a home win. But now it's like, well, you got a tough team uh, in Oregon at home. Oregon State is no slouch despite their record not being great. They're kind of like, Oregon State women is a lot like WSU men's, where it's like, you know, they, they're talented. They Their record might not be all that, but they're talented and they're well-coached and they can they can upset you if they if they really get themselves going. Um, and then you go on the road for a tough, tough L.A. trip. It's just a – it's a scary part of the schedule right now, and, and um, you really got to hope that our, that our staff, that our players are just completely locked in. And um, But they're easy to trust. If – there, there is no one on Pullman I trust more than Cami Etheridge. To be honest, it's just, it's just how it goes for me. Yeah, I, you know, that's the thing I keep coming back to is uh, number one, she's a great coach, um, and it almost seems like, look, I mean, you know more about you know scheme and whatever than I do. You know, from from the outside, the things I see is that they are so mentally tough, um, and that shows up in you know, comebacks in the second half, it shows up in, um, just sort of the ability to bounce back from tough games. Um, and, and, you know, she, it just seems like her strength as a coach or, or, you know, or at least one of her strengths as a coach, 
um, is the ability to really tap into that and communicate, you know, it, it, the word you used was right. The sense of urgency, right. You know, tap into that, communicate that with the players and, and they have just sort of time and time again, uh, over the course of her tenure proven that they, that they get that, that they understand that and that they can, that, that they can sort of meet the moment really about the only time they haven't been able to meet the moment is Stanford. And there are, you know, other reasons for that, including just talent disparity, right? The women's basketball game is still, um, you know, there's still a handful of programs that are really kind of hoarding uh, most of the talent Stanford being one of them. So, you know, okay. So you can't, you know, no matter what you do, you can't really make it close against Stanford, but you know, again, when you're looking at, uh, you know, everybody else in the PAC 12, I mean, there's not another team in the PAC 12 that we haven't shown that we can hang with. And, you know, when we look at this team, you know, um, you know, just sort of playing at home when they have Charlize, uh, they play really well, right? Like really, we're kind of looking here at, at home this year. They have, they have five losses at home, one to Stanford, and then the other four games without Charlize. So I, I, I do think that, you know, things set up well for them against Oregon and Oregon state. Um, I think if you win both of these games, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no bracketologist and I always caution people against, well, if you do this, then you're fine because it's a moving target. But, um, but it sure seems like, you know, you take care of business this weekend. If you get both of these, um, you know, again, nobody's, nobody's faulting you for losing on the road at UCLA and USC, um, particularly given the strength of the conference. So, yeah, I think they're in decent shape. Um, Oregon is on Friday, uh, Oregon state on Sunday, uh, both those games on PAC 12 networks. If you are inclined to watch them, well, Bryce, I said, I was going to keep it under an hour, but in the true spirit of podcast versus everyone, uh, we are not under an hour, but time really flies when, you know, when the conversation's good and the basketball's good. We didn't, we did not talk about beer. I did that on purpose. So I should let our listeners know, uh, Bryce, what are you having Bryce? What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking cheap black tea with one single sweet low in it. <laughs> so Bryce is drinking tea. Um, I'm having, I just polished off a Lucille, which, uh, we talked about on the show a few weeks ago. Cause I still had some in my fridge also not very interesting. So decided to forego the beverage uh beverage version of this uh bryce before we go why don't you tell the folks where they can find uh some of your cool work obviously they know they can find you at cook center but you have other work that you do twitter and and also on patreon go yeah i uh i i'm out, i'm on twitter at bryce hendrick 14 i i have no s in there and i've become too attached to the name to change it and add the s because for a while I didn't know you could I, you could change your Twitter handle until until I already had like 500 followers and then I was like too locked in. Uh, but yeah, Kook Center is where I do all my WSU work and expect uh, you know the the last couple of re, uh, previews and then I will do like a big giant season recap and that'll be like a whole thing. So be ready for that. Uh, yeah, and then I have uh, I have a Patreon that I have not done much work on because I've been very busy. I'm basically with my internship doing like 75 hours worth of basketball work a week. So I'm like pretty slammed with uh, just constant basketball. That's not even (laughs) counting like being on the practice squad and, and, you know, just trying to work out sometimes and all that stuff. But so yeah, if you, if you're interested in the Patreon, hopefully I'll start doing work on that soon enough. And then I, I also have a podcast. If you care about the NBA draft, I will eventually talk about Muhammad gay. And then next year, hopefully a drama Jong. So 
be ready for that. And yeah, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for having me on. This is uh, truly an honor to go behind Craig's back. I feel like that is a yeah. uh, rite of passage. <laughs> I hope I hope he is so jealous right now. Like, I hope he is just super jealous. Uh, yeah, it was super fun. I appreciate you coming on again. Now Craig can no longer needle me about. Uh, so like it, it, we, we went from, you know, for how, 100 and you know, 70, whatever episodes of with me as always is Jeff Newser to, uh, with me as usual as Jeff. And it just kind of, just kind of rubs me the wrong way. So now I can, uh, now we're even I've missed a show. He's missed a show. Um, so we're, we're even everything is square. Uh, and I feel good about that. As I said, at the beginning of the show, uh, you know, subscribe to the newsletter again, it's, it's podcast VS everyone, uh, dot substack.com. Um, and by the way, the thing I, I, I really enjoy about Substack, so I subscribe to a lot of Substack newsletters. Um, I actually don't get them delivered to my email. I use the Substack app where it sort of collects all the different Substack newsletters that I subscribe to. So I really like that feature of it. Uh, it's very cool. I do plan on doing some stuff within that. Uh, there's a chat function. We can do a chat thing. Uh, plan on trying that out at some point. So subscribe to that newsletter. Um, even if you subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter, because um, as I said, I'm dabbling in writing there at this point, uh, any substantial writing that I do is, is almost certainly going to live there. Um, so find that there. Um, and then also again, subscribe to the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I am on, you know, so Bryce gave you his, I am on pod, uh, pod VS everyone. Uh, on Twitter and then also on Instagram. You can find me at Nuscoog, N-U-S-S-C-O-U-G. If you're into pictures of my family and my wife and food, that's sort of what I do there most of the time. Um, did make a fabulous brisket over the weekend, so uh, you're all jealous. And uh, I think I think that's all of it. Craig will let me know if I missed anything. But uh, to wrap it up here, Bry- Bryce, are you aware, have you, have you ever made it to the end of the show, you're aware of how we finish this thing out? I, I, I do always make it to the end of the show. Uh, okay. Yeah. I right. say right. go fucking coops, right? Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then? And then uh, so, so go Cougs. All right, so go go Cougs, Bryce. Go Cougs, Jeff. Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. And get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Also, support a local union. That's uh, that's what I want that to That too. Support a union. Hell protect yeah. Trans, Dude. Protect trans kids. We are adding that. Stuff. Yeah, we can add that one too. Man, I like it. All right. Thanks, guys.